Good morning, party people. It's a good Sunday morning. You are listening to Now Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, your civics teacher, your neighborhood political strategist, Eljoy Williams. And I'm happy you're here. I'm happy and glad that you made it to class this morning. So I have a question. Have you ever thought about who the people are that work on political campaigns? How do candidates and campaigns hire people like me? How do they come to certain decisions of the candidates' messaging, where they're going to campaign, who else they're going to hire on the campaign, the vendors that they're going to choose, all of those questions? Well, today we're going to delve into the multi-layered world of political campaigns, just setting you up for what is going on right now as people start trading resumes and CVs and hiring what we call general consultants and messaging consultants to come on their campaign for next year's whirlwind of campaigning across the country. Uh, And we're going to talk from a perspective that isn't often explored or explained. We're going to talk about the strategy and decision making within a campaign and highlight the small group of individuals who shape the course of politics often behind the scenes. During our discussion, we're going to examine the decisions made on various campaigns. That could be presidential campaigns, discussing why certain populations are targeted or certain voters are targeted over others. We'll look at the political consultants like myself (laughs) who shape the strategy that ultimately reach the public. There are a whole bunch of meetings and fights. (laughs) Don't forget that emails and text messages and signals and slacks that happen before we get to the point where you see the candidate at a community meeting, before you see the candidate on a campaign ad or see their poster or mailing come into your inbox. So I wanted to have a conversation with someone who did a little bit of study. Our guest for this conversation is Daniel Larson. He's an author of the insightful book, Producing Politics, Inside the Exclusive Campaign World, who will offer us an insider's view of this complex process. He's an associate professor of sociology at Swarthmore College and formerly an organizer on Barack Obama's 2008 campaign. So he stands at like both the academic analysis and also the practical realities of campaign work. So how a candidate runs their campaign is important. The decisions of the consultants that they hire, the staff, what vendors they plan to use, and the overall direction of the campaign is important because it tells you a lot about how they will govern. (laughs) So through this conversation, I hope to shed light a little bit on the behind the scenes work of politics. And I'm sure, you know, you can already guess this is a very, very small world. Mainly white dudes, like wearing khakis with no tie, you know, or some like blazer with no tie or whatever that like made all the decisions on campaigns in my early days. And I'd be like, who is this guy? Where did he come from? He's making like stupid presentations. And then realizing, oh, are we paying them $12,000 a month? 
<laughs> it's a very tight knit in terms of who controls the narrative or the consultants that are de uh, developing and deciding what is happening, particularly on a presidential and congressional level. So this is pretty significant. And it's important for you to know how that is put together, because these campaigns that are operating in your community, in your state, you can then begin to develop different questions of what you're asking candidates. So welcome to the front of the class for the first time, Daniel Larson. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you about all of this. No problem. So I'm sure you're aware of the Khaki Boys. Uh, <laughs> uh, I wish I'd called them that in the book, really. I mean, it's a perfect encapsulation of the, the type of people who are most likely to be making the most money and making some of the key decisions in, in campaigns. Yeah. Yeah. We had all sorts of names for them, like the blue shirts, the khaki boys, like all that kind of stuff is, yeah. you know, and they all have like the same similar background. And like we said, you look at the filing that comes out, you know, because as staffers, we do to see what the campaign is on. And it's just like, this dude is making ten, fifteen thousand dollars a month. What the heck? Uh, so before we get into the meat of that conversation, it is your first time in front of the civics class. So I'd love to hear the story of your first civic action. Yeah. I grew up with a mom who was a, a real social justice activist in the, in the 70s. I mean, I was born in 77, so I started noticing in the 80s. I think the first really civic action I remember doing with her was probably going to the South African consulate's house in Seattle, where I grew up every Sunday morning and walking in a circle outside his house and chanting, about free South Africa and end apartheid and so on, and watching people also go up on the lawn and get get arrested, and you know, just sort of seeing that we were taking the you know, taking the fight about what was going on in South Africa to a direct representative of of that government. You know, of course, when I was a kid, I was deeply bored and annoyed by having to go to these protests every Sunday morning. But as a grown up, I really look back and I think like that was you know, one of the many places where my mom taught me that being part of trying to fight for what's right in the world is sort of all of our responsibility in various ways. And I was really, you know, I'm really proud that I was, you know, was part of that, even if it wasn't my choice when I was seven, eight, nine years old. Yeah. Most people have that early memory of doing something with a parent or, you know, an older loved one. And, I, you know, I'm planning for 2024 to do this whole special and show about the activism here in the U.S. surrounding apartheid in South Africa. And so it's a, a unifying thing, <laughs> you know, that all of these folks from different walks of life have a, a story about mm -hmm. how parents or themselves participated in that action. Yeah. So, Daniel, I'm going to I just want to get right into it because, yeah, you know, our conversation, we're going to look up from now and be like, oh, dang, it was an hour of <laughs> this. So we're going into another election cycle every year. There's an election cycle. But in this one, this is, you know, our big one of every four mm -hmm. years. And already folks are starting to make commentary, whether it's the Democratic Party or Republican Party, because, I, you know, I follow people from both parties and all seem to be having this conversation about the parties and candidates taking advice from the same people, right? The leadership class, the political leadership cast, mm -hmm. and how they need to diversify who they are, who's in the room, who's mm -hmm. making the decisions 
on what is happening. And it's interesting to see it, you know, I'm entrenched in it in terms of Democratic Party politics, but it's interesting to see that these are some of the same conversations that activists on the ground on the conservative side, at least the Black conservatives that I follow, are having some of the same conversations, these tensions between who is making the decisions on campaigns and who is even has the has the candidate's ear. Mm-hmm. So set the scene for us on producing politics in general and what the book highlights. And, you know, hopefully we can get into the meat of the conversation of what we look for coming next cycle. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one, one of the reasons I was really interested in this topic is because I think, you know, what campaigns do plays an enormous role in how regular people see politics, right? Like most people aren't seeking out, they're not reading The Hill, they're not like seeking out the deep background information on what's going on. They Politics comes to them largely through campaigns, maybe through what's happening in the news or social media. And a lot of politics, I think a lot of people assume that that's the politicians, right? That's who you have to pay attention to. But most of what politicians do, as you know, is, and as you said at the setup, is is shaped. It's not entirely determined, right? You, a campaign consultant can't make a politician do something that they don't think is a good idea or that they, they can't stand behind. But a lot of it is shaped by political professionals, right? By people who make their livings, giving advice, running campaigns, running field operations, designing ads, designing flyers, designing, you know, all of that. So those people are sort of, you know, I think are a really important part of the story of how American politics works. So one of the first sort of pieces, I think, is just to recognize how many people there are who make their living doing politics in various ways, but aren't necessarily in front of the candidates. And those people aren't just, the, you know, there's been some work on campaign consultants, right? The people who get paid the big busts, the people whose names you've heard, you know, David Axelrod and David Bluff in the Obama campaign, Carl Rove, those sorts of folks. But there's so many other people behind the scenes helping determine how campaigns work, who gets contacted, what messages, all of that. So that's what I really wanted to focus on. So I started the book by by volunteering myself on the Obama campaign, although I probably wanted to do that anyway. And used contacts I had from from that campaign and from my social network in various ways, as well as just cold calls to to talk to as many people as I could. So I ended up interviewing 72 people about their experience working in politics. And I also put together a database of all all, everybody I could find who had worked on a presidential campaign. So I'm able to say some things about sort of who those people are overall from both of us. Yeah. Let's let's talk about a little bit more. What are some of those roles that go in? Like you said, there are folks who are strategists, right? Big names, you know, Donna Brazil, like you mentioned, David Axelrod, you know, th- those are big names because you also then see them in roles on cable news, right? And talking about their experience, what the, the advice that they have, even myself as a strategist I'm here in New York, you know, and nationally people want to know what would you advise your client to do, <laughs> you know, or not do and things of that nature. But what are some of the other roles, like you mentioned, that don't get on TV, that you don't see, who are central to, like you said, what a campaign and a candidate does with their campaign? Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, it you know, varies a little bit from campaign to campaign and especially depending on the funding and role, the level of politics we're talking about. But there's always a campaign manager. That's not always somebody you've heard of. 
There's, there's communication strategists who may be consultants who are hired from outside the campaign, but there's often also people in-house who are working on communications or working on media relations or working on speech writing or working on all of that. Um, and that's where a lot of roles or key messages get, get determined. Another really important word campaign, I think in, in some ways the most important part, but it's not very valued by a lot of people inside the campaign world is the field, right? The people whose job it is to coordinate actually having people going out and talking one-on-one -on -one to voters in their um, and All the research about what matters in, you know, for, for who votes and for how they vote shows that direct one-on-one -on -one communication is the absolute most effective thing you can do. And yet who's often doing that in you know, field operatives, often straight out of college, often with no connection with the communities they're working in, you know, being managed by people just a little bit older than them, et cetera. And it's a very, you know, one person I interviewed for the book said, basically, you know, it's good somebody's out there in North Dakota talking to people, but I, sh I certainly wouldn't want to, right? It's sort of the, the dirty work in some ways, um, of the low status, boring, et cetera, work. And it's where I think, you know, we ought to be putting it off a lot more of our, of our energy and our, our funds to, to really make that effective. So those yeah. are a couple of communications field. I can talk about other, you know, there's lots of other departments in any given campaign. I think the other, the other one I'd add is just the political department, which is the, you know, I always say that you know, the first time I saw it, I was like, what is a political department inside a campaign? That's like, uh, but redundant, right? Campaign department of the campaign. But basically that is where the people job it is to make connections with particular communities are all housed. And so that's one of the most racially diverse parts of any campaign often is the political department, because that's where the director of African American outreach will be the director of Latino outreach, the director of outreach to people with disabilities, whatever the, you know, the sort of titles are, that's where a lot of people with coloring campaigns often get one person I interviewed said silent, right? So they're doing important work, but they're not necessarily at the heart of the campaign strategy in the way they have to be also. Yeah. Well, I mean, to give more insight, particularly, that's usually where if I'm not what's called a general consultant helping to shape the entirety of the campaign, mm -hmm. I'm often on larger campaigns in the political department or mm -hmm. building out the political department. And as you mentioned, you know, it can often be isolated or siloed because your job, even starting out as a young staffer in that department, is to just build relationships with whatever particular identity group or labor is also something in their faith-based and, you know, outreach. So it's, it's more the relationship building part of the campaign. I think they now call it relational organizing or, you know, relationship building or something like that. But it has connections to the field, right? Because mm -hmm. if you are the faith-based organizer, while you may be making connections with the leadership, field has to be contacted at some point, you know, to make sure that there is a connection with how the campaign is organizing people to actually vote. Field team is the heart of the campaign. And like you mentioned, is often struggling to get every dollar it needs in order to contact and engage with people, mm -hmm. but is also the one that is always in unhealthy campaigns, invested in last and hired last and expected, you know, to produce the greatest result, which is the actual votes. But in terms of who's shaping that 
direction of the campaign before Fields can even do its job, you know, there are the communications folks, the general consultants, the candidates' friends, and, you know, sort of endorsers that are saying, this is the message that this is, you know, how we're going to spend the money. This is how we're going to raise the money that Mm -hmm. has an impact on what is happening on the ground. Can you talk about, because, you know, it was interesting you talk about the privileged few, that there is sort of the same people recycled over and over again, particularly when you're talking about presidential campaigns and sort of large Senate campaigns and things of that nature. It's the same people making the decisions over and over again. Yeah. And one of the, one of the so just to give you this, this sort of headline stats, first of all, then I can talk about how this happens. I looked at the racial makeup of U.S. voters and campaign staff by party in 2020. And you know, if you look at U.S. adults as a whole, about 60% are non- non-Hispanic white. If you look at voters, it's a somewhat higher rate overall. It's about 70% are non-Hispanic white. Democratic voters look more like the country as a whole in terms of racial composition. Again, about 60% non-Hispanic white, about 20% black. 10, a little more than 10% Hispanic or Latino, the rest Asian and everyone else. But if you look at Democratic campaign staff, overall, they're again closer to 70% non-Hispanic. They're not sort of matched to the, to the people they're working with. But I think more importantly than that, when you look across the departments, yeah, well, first of all, if you look at the, the sort of highest level, internal, inner circle, advisors, you know, friends of the candidate, et cetera, those... With, with the partial exception of Hillary Clinton's campaign, actually, in recent history, have been very disproportionately white and almost if you And if you look across the departments, you know, communications is, is often the highest eight part of campaign work. And it's also, you know, what's considered, I think, among many people in campaigns, sort of the highest status, aside from if you're actually in charge. And that is, in, in 2020, it was about 80%. So, you know, really unmatched to people that they're charged with communicating with. Whether you look at the U.S. as a whole, or you look at the people who report voting for Democrats, and really, you know, really distinct in other ways too. So I also looked at the the schools, the, the colleges and universities people reported down too. And first of all, you know, only about thirty five to forty percent of adults in the U.S. have a bachelor's, so all of, and and close to ninety percent of Democratic campaign professionals and something like eighty percent Republican ones have a bachelor's degree. So that's a huge sort of class gap between the people working in politics and everybody. Now you might say, you know, college is a great place to learn a lot of things. So we're glad people have a college degree. But then you look at where people went to college and they went to the the most exclusive colleges and universities in the country, the ones that are incredibly disproportionately made up of very, very wealthy people. So a lot of these places, Harvard, the college I teach at Sportsmore, Yale, all of those sorts of places, as well as, you know, Northwestern, Georgetown, these are places where the children of the 1% outnumber the children of people in the bottom 20 or 40% of the institution. So they're really rarefied, elite, exclusive, not where normal people go to college by and large, right? That's shifting some now at some of those colleges and universities, but overall, you have to sort of guess the family income of people who finished at one of those places. 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, your best guess is that parents were in the top 5 or 10% of income distribution. And that's where those kinds of colleges, those highly exclusive elite colleges and universities, 
about 40% of campaign professionals went to them as compared to only about 4% or sorry, 40% of Democratic campaign professionals attended those kinds of colleges and universities as compared to only about 4% of Americans overall. So it's just incredibly those blue shirt khaki boys, you know, who went to the Harvard or the Penn or, or whatever it is and are giving the advice. They got a very different life history than most of the people who I would like to be talking. Yeah. And those are the folks who are making the decision on not only who to talk to, but who not to talk to. Where, and yes, that decision is made on a campaign. And, you know, it's difficult because, you know, on the one hand, you have to use math, um, you know, this is the people that we're going to target that's going to get us to the number we need in order to win. And in a campaign, which is a, a time, a specific time frame, right? It's not mm-hmm. like, have, yes, you can build up years to you individually running, but the campaign doesn't run for multiple years. You're not paying people three or four years to organize and build your voter base in that instance. You're playing, you know, with a, a year at most 16 you know, 18 months in that time. And we certainly don't have field and organizing staff on that time. You have to make a for who am I going to target, meaning who am I going to talk to to try to pull them out in order to vote for me so that I can get to win, which means you have to make a decision on who you don't have the time or the resources to engage on your campaign and on your issues because. While you may end up representing them if you're, you know, trying to get elected in that campaign time frame, you don't have the time and the resources to actually convert them to a voter. And that is a a constant struggle a campaign has with also doing the work and particularly for incumbents. Right. And, you know, well, just any candidate. That is the difficulty with wanting to everybody. I value everybody's vote and everybody's voice with. I don't have unlimited money and unlimited time in order to do that. And so then when you have people at the table making the decision who don't have that diversity of background or are with on, in a particular, you know, either class or focus insular, quite often the people on the chopping block that you don't have time and monies to engage with are people you don't value you know, or don't know that much about. And therefore, I don't know much about them and I don't know if they're going to turn out and vote or whatever. So I'm just going to cut them out in general. And that's really the decision that they're making. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's evidence that uh, to, uh, people I really like by Ryan, you know, some other folks that basically shows that the choices campaigns make in the contact are part of increasing inequality in political participation. Because they tend to contact, and they, you know, it's not all, yeah, it's not all nefarious. It's not necessarily people trying to keep people home or or realizing who they're ignoring. And some of it is, you know, as you said, it's based on math, right? But campaigns tend to contact people they think are medium likely to vote, and the people who are less than medium likely to vote are disproportionately poor and working class and people of color. So those people on, on average are less likely to hear from the campaign and then they're less likely to turn out because a contact from a campaign increases the chance that you turn out. So you get this sort of 
vicious cycle where, and I think this, this operates at much larger levels too, right? Where the people who don't tend to be engaged in politics don't get the attention from campaigns of politicians because they don't tend to get, be engaged in politics. And then they see that their issues aren't listened to or talked about or et cetera. And then why would they engage in politics? Because those folks are just talking about things that don't affect me and they're just making promises they're not going to keep and et cetera, et cetera. So you get this sort of vicious, vicious cycle. And the only way to get out of it is for campaigns and for other political organizations to, to do organizing or to try to figure out how to connect with people who are, who are disengaged, who are, I think, justifiably cynical often and so on. But that takes, as you said, time money, etc. We are talking to Daniel Larson. He's the author of the book Producing Politics Inside the Exclusive Campaign World. In our conversation today, we are giving a peek behind the curtain, giving you a deeper understanding on how campaigns are run, political campaigns that that is, and the tight exclusive group of individuals who are making these decisions. And so my challenge to you, those of you who are listening, is as these candidates are out and about, that you ask the question about how their teams are made up, you know, where they get their consultants from. Is it representative of the diversity of the district that they are looking to serve? And are they actually listening? You know, Daniel, one of the things in campaign and campaign speak, right, is the number of touches you need to make to a house, you know, to a household or to a voter in order to convert them to your side, right? And that touch can be, you know, having someone knock on their door. So, you know, organizer knock on the door, having someone call or text them, right? So some sort of phone connection, mail to their households, right? Uh, As well as television and things of that nature. So it's like this communication, right? Like what communication do I have with a voter? And from the the calculation that I mentioned, for for a population of voters or potential voters who don't have a history of consistently voting, you know, the math is you have to do more touches to that population in order to get them to turn out in general, not even before you get to the conversion. (laughs) Like, like just to get them engaged and get them in the process or in the queue, you have to do a certain amount of touches before you can even try to convert them to actually vote on your side. And so campaigns are making the decision, again, do I have the resources and the time to actually engage. And as you mentioned, it creates that vicious cycle of, well, that particular community, that voting block, that what have you, doesn't really engage on a regular basis. Do I have the time and the money to really talk to and engage in this population that probably needs the most, (laughs) probably more prevalent? And that is the way in which the, the cycle works. And, but you at some point need to ha- make a decision, you know, is it worth it, you know, in order to engage? On smaller campaigns, it's harder to make that decision. On larger campaigns like presidential campaigns, th- I would argue that they have the most time and resources and abundance in order to do that. Or do you think differently? No, I think that's, I mean, I think that's right. I think, you know, I try to be careful in the book because on the one hand, you know, people running campaigns are absolutely trying to figure out how to win, right? They're not, 
there's this there's this sort of stereotype and there's a bunch of books published that sort of make this made this argument over the last 50 years even that because there's more and more people who make their money from politics what they're trying to you know they're just trying to make their money they don't really care they're just sort of hucksters or you know whatever frauds they you know they they're not that invested in the in the actual outcomes or in the health of our democracy and i think that's broadly not actually true right most everybody i talk to with maybe one or two people out of the 70 plus people i talk to said something along the lines of yeah i just gotta make the money like who you know, who cares almost everybody else was, and those were low level like less less successful books jim pretty much everyone i talked to really believed in their party really wanted to see their party win elections really cared about the you know, one, one guy I talked to said, this was a Republican, said basically like, I could make more money selling toothpaste, but I don't give a damn if gold toothpaste box is red or green. I care who's president, right? Because who's president shapes, you know, he was anti-choice, who's president shapes who's on the Supreme Court, as we've seen. And, you know, whether we have what I would call protection, protections for reproductive rights in this country and what he would fall, whether we have, you know, protections for like that. So it's not that they don't care. And I really try, you know, I'm not arguing that in the book at all. And they're, you know, they're using the best evidence they can, right? They're using, they're using polls, they're using data analytics, they're using modeling, they're using all this stuff. But what most people said to me is that on some level, at the end of the day, a lot of the decisions really do come down to sort of your guts, right? There's some math, there's some analysis. There's also, you know, who am I familiar with? Who do I think I can, can sway? You know, who is sort of, you know, what have we decided is the key swing voter this election that's not really based on, you can't really know, right? And so a lot of the, a lot of the things campaigns do, I think are not necessarily in every case, the most likely to result in that campaign winning that election. And you know, the other thing a lot of people said to me is that they felt like they couldn't do things that they thought would be effective because they would be considered too weak. And being considered sort of outside of the norm, outside of what everybody else thinks is the right way to go. And if you're the guy, often it's men, but not always, right? If you're the guy doing the weird stuff, if you win that way, you might be okay. But if you lose, you're the guy who lost because you didn't do what everybody else thought. Right? So if you organize a campaign that really tried to reach out to unlikely voters in poor communities, and you ended up losing, everybody will say, see, I told you, right? That's obviously a bad idea. Where ends, you know, there are some studies showing that even one contact for people who are registered but haven't voted can increase the probability they vote by, by five or 10 percentage points, right? So it's not fair to me that all of the conventional wisdom about how many times you have to touch people and who is both likely to be moved is necessarily, or at least that it is right enough that we shouldn't also be reaching out, especially as you said, in presidential campaigns where there's so much money and there's so much resources reaching out to people who are not traditionally, have not been voters. Right. Now, were there, you mentioning one example from a Republican consultant, were there any significant differences between what is happening on the Democratic side versus the Republican side? So in terms of how they thought about their work and talked about their work, there were many fewer differences than you might expect. And you know, a number of them said to me, and this, you know, most of the interviews I did, I did a few in 2017 right after Trump was elected, but most of them were before Trump was around. So I think that's shifted things somewhat, but maybe not as much as I mentioned more wisdom would, would have you, have you believe. Uh, you know, they, 
people tended to think of voters, you know, I, I heard actually sort of surprisingly little about voters or people when people describe their jobs. You know, they talked about ads, they talked about messages, they talked about, you know, what people around them would think, what would be, you know, re- reactions from the media. You know, I worked through all of my interview transcripts for inter- mentions of voters and they were, they were surprisingly clear. There are a couple differences. Republican campaign professionals are much, much, much more likely to be white than Democratic campaign professionals, which makes sense given their constituencies. But they manage to be even a little, even more white than Republican voters, which is impressive considering how disproportionately white, especially after 2020, Republican voters were. They're also a little more likely to be, this was only a few people, I think you see this more, a little more likely to be what I would call the yeah. anti-democratic in the sense of the small d democracy. Yeah. Or a couple of them said things like, you know, it would be better for me yeah. or if, you know, I don't care if only three people turn out to vote as long as two of them vote for my guy. Or, you know, my job would be easier if fewer people vote because then the math is easier to figure out who's going to, how they're going to vote and who I have to sway and so on. I heard sort of inklings of that from Democrats as well, but that kind of attitude towards voters, I heard a bit more from a fair amount more from the Republicans, right? That there's, that, that voters are not who they're actually interested in. Um, and less democracy would be off. So I, I want to talk more about voters, as you mentioned, that from a campaign perspective are harder to engage, right? More expensive and more expensive, not as if the money goes directly to that voter, but more expensive in terms of the campaign has to spend both time and money to actually engage that voter. And primarily, they are voters in a more diverse racial ethnic group, different class, right? So there are working class people, poor people who are the least likely to be engaged from that standpoint, not at all saying that they're not, but saying that, you know, they're least likely to to be and I know that is also the trajectory. Let's talk about why that why it's hard <laughs> to engage poor and working class people. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it really is that the the people who are trying to do the the engaging, right? The campaign professionals who reach out to them. Also, though, by and large, a lot of the volunteers that that sign up to knock doors for Democrats and and to somewhat lesser degree for Republicans, a lot of the volunteers don't look like the people they're trying to talk to. Right. And, you know, I did both. I uh, did get out the vote work to the 2022 election, you know, and I'm a white professor. And I was sent actually not far from where I live, but 10 blocks away. I live in West Philadelphia. 10 blocks west of me is a working class black neighborhood. And I was knocking on doors there. And people talked to me, and it was fine. But I'm the only white guy for, you know, blocks in every direction. Only white guy I saw when I was out. And, like, you know, I did, I did my best that I feel like I can, you know, fine at connecting, but but I'm not somebody that, that necessarily people are going to trust, right? To tell them what is important or what might make a difference in their lives or where, or, you know, who, who's running and why they should care. And so, you know, I did, I did that work, but, you know, I went and you know, one of the doors I knocked on, I went to go knock on the door and a gentleman was coming out the door next door and she, he said, oh, you know, that's Ms. Jones' house. Ms. Jones always works at the polls on election days. So she's not going to answer, but you don't have to worry. She's she's definitely voting. She works at the polls. And I just thought, you know, why, why am I here? I don't mind being here. I'm happy to do it, right? But why am I here? Why haven't we taught? Why hasn't somebody figured out that Ms. Jones, A, knows everybody on the block, right? 
and B, really cares about democracy and makes sure to turn out herself and work the polls every, every day. Some, you know, Ms. Jones should be checking with people on her block about whether they're going to vote. Yeah. And that would take a lot of, a lot of effort to find them as Joneses and, you know, help them talk to people about turning out to vote, but it would be so much effort, right? And I think that that kind of logic about how, you know, that, that a lot of what matters to people and how they make, how we make most decisions in our lives, right? Isn't a sort of rational calculation of like, it's worth my 15 minutes because it, to go stand in this line or half hour, hour or whatever it's going to be, right? And people aren't sitting there weighing like, if I spend this hour, then there's a chance that this, you know, this hour will result in this vote, which will result in this person being elected, which will result in this policy, which might down the road mean that my food stamp benefits go up or there's more jobs in my neighborhood or whatever else, even if that's true. Right. People do things because of the people around them, the people they trust, the people they know, when they feel connected to. Right. So if every, you know, Ms. Jones is talking to people, that's going to be, be so much more effective than if I'm talking to Bill Singh. I think that's at least a big part of what we're missing when we think about engaging poor working class, poor working class members. And, it, 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 you know, it's my experience that quite often it is the larger campaigns, the presidential campaigns who have the capacity and are hiring people from Iowa and, you know, Michigan and random places and then shipping them off to other parts of the country to work in this. Having participated in myself, right? I'm yeah. from New York, but, you know, worked on a presidential campaign and I was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I was like, okay. Uh, you know, if that's where I'm going. Right. And also congressional races, which, you know, I have a bone to pick with the party of particularly where they get campaign managers from. Right. And it's similar to how they do field organizers. Right. Of getting people from these other places that are primarily young uh, that can pay, you know, a you know, a, a smaller amount, like hiring me to go to a campaign is more expensive than hiring some 19 or 26 year old, you know, the Midwest, and then putting them with congressional campaigns or Senate campaigns where they just went through a training or two and now they're the campaign manager. And it's because they went to Swarthmore <laughs> or like because they went to Harvard. Not yeah. that, you know, there's any, you know, sort of real particular, you know, and, and not to disparage all of them, right? Because some of them want to go into the profession and this is what they do. But that, but, but, but that is what happens, right? Yes. And so rather than investing in, again, thinking people are being lazy because they're like, I don't have time. Let's just do a call out and hire the people we need to hire in order to send them and engage with them. And that creates resentment in, on the ground. Right. Where it is not people from your community that, you know, that live up the block or even, let's say, a community or a town over. Um, mm -hmm. But it is people outside of your community coming in to tell you what to do. And so that resentment factor, you know, in my experience, if you don't have people that are trying to build community that are, you know, trying to organize it in an authentic way you know, can create that resentment from a community where you don't even value me enough to engage and hire people within my community to talk to me. Yeah. I'm not engaging. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, it, it's so endemic in the sort of campaign mindset that the people you want to 
hire are the people you already know and the people you trust and people who've shown themselves to be reliable and good workers. And I, you know, I have some sympathy for that, right? But it's, I think it's counterproductive in terms of actually doing what I think campaigns and political organizing put and should do, which is create communities, be, you know, create connections between communities and elected officials, right? The people who are ultimately going to be elected officials. You know, you could have a model where you, you know, you find the Ms. Joneses, you find the organizers from those communities, you find the people who are, you know, who are working at the community center or who, you know, know everybody at the church or whatever it is, and and you pay them to to connect people in their communities to politics. I think there's, you know, one reason it doesn't happen is what I just said about, you know, the sense that you just want to work with the people you trust, the people you already know. And I think it also... You know, if for that to be really effective, you'd also have to have two-way communication on some of it, right? Like it would, you know, not only does the organizer, would it be most effective if the organizer is from that community, but also if that organizer can say, I actually care about what you have to say, or I have some way to take it to the people in charge, right? And that, you know, I, I'd love to see that happening. I didn't, right after my book came out, I didn't support for the envelope map, and I was like, oh, we spent. Some Democratic campaigns in 2020 spent something like $9 billion, $8 billion on, on their just on the, you know, just on the formal campaign side, not even counting all the, all the PACs and independent expenditures. We take $1 billion of those dollars, right? And pay, I forget the exact figure out, like 2,000 organizers for $50,000 a year for, for four years with just one of those billion dollars. Right, who could really make connections in those communities? Who could really, you know, start start bringing people together? Who could you know, connect people to politics in a much more deep and meaningful way than we currently do? Right, where somebody who often looks like me or in fact is me is just knocking on people's doors every two or four years and thinking we should go, but it's important to get right, and that just is 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 not that effective. In fact, you know, it's still the most effective thing, evidence based thing a campaign could do. But I just. I, I just think there's got to be a doubt. Yeah. And that's not to say that campaigns don't hire locally. They do. Quite often, you know, in my experience, it has been in field, right? You are folks, you know, on the field side. A lot of local elections do that. You know, particularly in African-American community with African-American candidates, you know, there is that ongoing tradition of hiring the people you know, here in Brooklyn, we hire the veterans every year. There are the people every year that we hire for petitions and, you know, and engaging in that work. And I remember, you know, particularly in this movement of campaign workers to unionize that, you know, they would more often than not, it was the folks who were, like you said, from Swarthmore, who were like the, you know, imported in, you know, kids or younger people talking about unionization but hadn't engaged with, you know, the working class and poor folks who also work on campaigns, but they're not included in the conversation about unionization efforts. And while I'm, I'm all for unionization efforts, I actually think it should be different. I think rather than organizing on particular campaigns, I think each region should have or maybe each state should have a campaign union overall. And so if you're working in you know, that union, whether you're a ongoing professional or, you know, working in fields or sort of do temporary things or whatever, that there should be one entity to do that instead of organizing on particular campaigns, right? Like, that's just my my view on it because campaigns are temporary. They're right. temporary, you know, campaigns right. or, you know, entities. 
and rather I think there should be a campaign, you know, union or, you know, right. local right. that right. sort of work on that overall that people can field in and out of because it takes away resources from a campaign specifically rather than, you know, talking about it larger. But it was always interesting to me that the folks who were organizing hadn't had conversations with the poor and working class folks, you know, that were hired to stand outside all day for flyering mm -hmm. for $200, whereas you're getting paid, you know, close to $4,000 a month, you know, for, you know, coming from the Midwest to, to work on something. So, you know, that dichotomy, again, bubbles over, not in terms of staff, but also in unionization or fairness conversations. Again, you're only talking to and engaging mm -hmm. with people you know and not branching out. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the ways, I mean, one of the reasons I think campaign work is so exclusive and so disconnected is because you have to start it really early for most people to have a powerful and meaningful role in the campaign, right? Most of the people who end up in a position like, you know, David Plot or David Axelrod or, or you know, name the campaign professional you've heard of, started working on a campaign because someone they knew was working on a campaign when they were 18 or 20 or 22, and they just kept that. They're the, they're the guys who are willing to, again, it's disproportionately mad, especially at the top levels, partly also because it's such awful work, right? It's incredibly intensive, invigorating, and exciting while you're doing it. But I, you know, I started the book saying my partner very nearly divorced me because I was, you know, so enthralled with, with being in the campaign office all the time because I didn't want to miss anything that, you know, and that I wasn't being home nearly enough to, to help, be, you know, be part of my daughter's life. It was just for a few months. Anyway, it's, you know, it's, it, it selects for people who, um, can prior, who want to prioritize politics over everything else. And that's, you know. Even aside from the race, class, and gender stuff, that's just not normal people, right? And, you know, fair enough that, you know, it's your passion and you want to do it, but it's not a, it's not a sort of work set up that allows regular people to be part of it to very long. But that's also, you know, a real problem that you have to figure out some, some solution to. Right. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about this. I'm going to give, you know, the audiences of folks, because I also think how candidates that run their campaigns or allow their campaigns to be run also gives you an indication of what, how they will be as elected officials. And, you know, particularly on these congressional and Senate campaigns and mayor's races that are, you know, millions of dollars, you know, budgets that are millions yeah. of dollars, like not just the diversity of the people that you see, but how you are investing those dollars. Is it the same consultants? Is it all D.C. based and sort of not investing in, you know, opportunities in the state or even in the district? Um, that you can, you know, do. Do you need the media buyer, you know, from D.C. or can you invest in companies within your state? Um, mm -hmm. You know, so thinking about the diversity of how you use the resources of your campaign during the time that you are running is also an indication of how they plan to govern. Mm -hmm. But thank you, Daniel, for making time to be at the front of the Sunday Civics class. Yeah, this was great. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to all of you for making it to class this morning. Remember, class is in session every Sunday right here on Sunday Civics on Sirius XM, Urban View, Channel 126, where talk becomes action. And I hope you learned a little bit uh, from the conversation this morning, partly because I want you to be vocal and have an active hand 
in the election cycle that is already in un- underway. I want you to have a list of questions that you are going to ask candidates, that you're going to query those who are looking to represent you, whether it be in Congress or in your local communities. And that's what we're going to do next Sunday. So make sure to bring your notebooks and I'm going to bring my thoroughest girl back with me. And we're going to have a conversation about developing your own political strategy for 2024. This is not just about having a calendar, which we'll talk about that as well and making sure you have the important dates down, you know, making sure you stay vote ready and having your plan of action together and getting your vote squad together. We'll go through all of that next Sunday. But a part of that conversation will also be how you evaluate the job that maybe incumbents, those who are currently serving and will be seeking re-election Or if you have races that are wide open or challengers and you're trying to evaluate how you make that choice, right? So we're going to talk about that because I want you to put together for yourself your plan of action that when these candidates come before you, this is what you're going to ask them. This is how you're going to evaluate them. And in a very realistic way, not a pie in the sky, this is what, you know, ideally should happen, but using what is currently happening in our politics, in this current landscape, and making a rubric for yourself. So that's what you can look forward to for next Sunday. We'll be right here with more Sunday Civics next week with more conversations and more lessons for you to take action and to stay civically engaged. Hope you have a great one.